Hey there, it's me, Malika Bilal. We've been having lots of discussions here at The Take about what this moment in U.S. history means and about what we're seeing. Protests, rallies, violence, hard but necessary conversations. So today, we've decided to bring you a discussion by an esteemed fellow journalist, Carvel Wallace. Carvel was the host of Al Jazeera's first feature podcast a couple of years ago, a show called Closer Than They Appear, where he had many tough conversations centered around the very issues we're struggling with today. He gave us a glimpse into what it's like to be a Black man in America. In the first of seven episodes, he talks with Academy Award-winning actor Mahershala Ali. It's insightful and moving and they get deep. Their chat is raw at times, and heads up, there may be a curse word or two. Not to offend, but for emphasis. Hope you enjoy. The Take will be back on Monday. Every morning when I wake up, I look in the mirror, and I see, I see that my skin is oily, that my eyes are still red with sleep, I see that my hair is nappy and my beard is unkempt. I look for beauty. But I see a man who is sometimes considered less than human. I see a man who has been homeless, who has been hungry, who has slept on park benches and in apartments with no electricity. I see a man who has been the only black person in his entire world who has been told he has evil in his eyes, that he is too loud, that he is too big, that he makes white people feel unsafe. I look in the mirror and I see a father and a friend and a magazine writer. I see a man who once worked 26 hours straight, fueled only by coffee, water, and a vape pen. I see a man who prays daily who makes a list every night of all the things in his life for which he is grateful. His health, having a bed, a job, two children who are alive and beautiful. I look in the mirror and I see a man with a past, living among a people who have a past in a country that has a past. I see a man who, like the nation that birthed him, has, up until today, always looked toward the future, always pretended the past isn't there or that it doesn't matter. But it is. And it does. And now, in order to go forward, I see a man and a country that has to face it. I'm Carvel Wallace, and this is Closer Than They Appear. I don't want to talk about this, but I have to. A year ago, right after the election, we went out and we got passports for our kids. We didn't know if we would make it here anymore. I know people whose marriages have come apart since then. People who no longer speak to their siblings. Nazis are parading through public parks. We are a nation of 320 million people, and all we have in common is that we don't like each other. 
Beyond that, we don't know what to do, how to go forward. I personally don't know what to do or what we can do. So I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask a bunch of people, some prominent, some not so prominent, from all over the country, what we can do. What is the deal with our past and how can we have a future? I'm also going to go into my own past, to places I haven't been for 30 years, to the small steel town where I was raised, to speak with the white woman who partially raised me, my Aunt B. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the whole story of Aunt B right now, but I, I do want you to think about this one thing. Who or what is in your past right now that you need to face but aren't facing. And why not? See, because I have this theory that maybe this whole nation is just 320 million people who all need to talk with someone that they're afraid to talk to. So, I just want you to think about that. But I'm not going to make you do it alone. Hey, how you doing, Carvel? Good. Good to, good to hear you, man. So I personally needed someone to help me work through all this stuff. And so I thought, why not start with Mahershala Ali? How, how have things been? Oh, things have been good, man. I, I can't complain. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that Mahershala Ali, the actor, good. the Academy Award winner, one of the most beautiful people to ever walk the face of the earth. Uh, life is good. How about yourself? Very good. Good. Busy, but all all with good things. So cool. And no people in my life, I'm not setting you up with Mahershala Ali. First of all, he's married. Secondly, you're supposed to be my girlfriend. So what the hell is that? Thank you. Um. Anyway, he, like me, has been doing all this work in his own family. And his family, like mine, embodies a whole host of contradictions. The same contradictions that America's facing right now. My mother is an ordained minister. I'm a Muslim. She didn't do backflips when I called her to tell her I converted 17 years ago. Anyway, you probably remember this speech that he gave at the Screen Actors Guild Awards. Here's the part I'm still thinking about. But I tell you now, we put things to the side. And I was able to, I'm able to see her. She's able to see me. We love each other. The love has grown. And that stuff is minutia. It's not that important. Now, when I hear that applause, I hear two things happening. One is people saying, oh, how beautiful. Like, this is so great. And the other is people saying, oh, good. He's not mad at us. Truthfully, I'd like to believe that we can all, in moments, be as full of grace as Mahershala is in this speech. But can we be that way as a country? Should we be? Is it safe to be? A lot of times, I don't feel like it is. At least not for me personally. I mean, how much grace should I be extending to someone I think might just want me dead? When do you feel like in your own upbringing, you first became aware of race and racism in your life? Like, when did you first become aware of the darker, the uglier sides of that? Huh. Um, that's such an interesting question because the way in which I, I, I sort of 
intuitively want to answer that question is is that I, I think I you're almost born with an awareness like you can't when can you when do parents like as a parent you have two children mm-hmm. 12 and 14 yeah. when could you say you actually started teaching them I think we start educating our children very early on as far as like who to watch out for, who to stay away from, who to trust, who not to trust, who you hand your child over to, like those things become these messages. And so I think we begin to uh, experience those things from from such an early age. And I think some people have very clear experiences like myself. I could remember a kid who I was hanging out with uh, quite a bit and um, who was a real close friend of mine. And then one time I was about seven years old and I had, this is early, I don't know, this is like 83 or something like that. And we get, you know, uh, 80, 80, maybe 81, 80, something like that. But we get some messages on our answer machine. You know, answer machines are a, mm-hmm. a pretty new thing. Right. But like, you know, he was this kid, Mike, and his sister and his sister's friend were on the answer machine calling me the N-word and kind of like joking around and giggling. And my mom told me I couldn't play with him anymore. And that was, that was at that time, that was, I had a lot of fun over Mike's house. Like he had like, you know, ColecoVision and like we would do sleepovers and have cereal and eat all this crazy stuff and just have a blast and be up all night. But just something he said, that I couldn't really feel the full resonance of at that time. Obviously, you're aware what the N-word is from from a very early age. But um, I think that right there really clued me in consciously that there was there was something that he could say to me or a white kid could say to me or a non-African-American could say to me that would affect me. But there really wasn't something that I could equally say to them to elicit the same response. Wow. That that's where I, I guess I could articulate that I or, or we as a people were different because I couldn't, I couldn't come back at a white kid right. with an equal ends. I just couldn't. So, right. and that way I felt inferior. Because there's no history behind it. So like that, right. that's the thing is because I think a lot of people are like, well, if you call me a honky, that's like the same thing. Or if you, mm-hmm. but like it's, it, I, I always feel like not really because it, there's not this whole history behind it. And in some ways, that's the thing I think is so weird about being that age hmm. is that you're not just introduced to a situation. You're suddenly introduced to generations upon generations yes. upon generations of meaning. And you yes. don't know yet what it is. And it's such, so funny that you tell that story because I have the exact same story, like hmm. literally to a person. So I'm, what was I'm, your relationship to the, to the, to the other person? So I'm in this small town called McKeesport, Pennsylvania, hmm. which is, which is where I lived from ages eight to about 13. Okay. And, and how diverse was that community? So that it depends on where you lived. So mm. it was a it was a steel town, like blue collar, steel mills kind of thing, just outside of Pittsburgh. And it was uh my experience of it at that age, like second, third, fourth grade was my group was all mixed up. It was like mm. a couple of black kids, a couple of white kids. I didn't even know what made us different. It didn't matter. We all we all jumped the same ramps in the alley next right. to my house, so it was all good. Um, and then there was this kid down the street named Artie. He's a white kid. And for some reason, I wasn't really allowed to go over Artie's house that much. But mm. he was out and about. And he was like one of the kids. He'd ride bikes with us. And, 
he'd show us stuff. We'd take sticks or whatever. And he, but he always was one of those kids who was a little bit edgy. He always had some deeper shit than we, <laughs> you know what I mean? He was always trying to make a slingshot and like trying to turn stuff right. into weapons. Like, Let's kill some birds. <laughs> exactly. I got some hollow tip BBs. <laughs> right. BB was, guns. So Artie was a little on that extra shit, which we thought was cool, but also kept it a certain distance. Anyway, my dad, my, uh, my, my uncle, who was partially raising me at the time, and this mm. is a story that I'll get into because it's actually complex. So I was raised partially by my uncle and the mm. woman that he married, who was a white woman from Connecticut. And they're okay. living in this small town. And at this point, I'm sure they're experiencing all type of race stuff that I didn't mm. understand. Mm. But my uncle- Because of just taking you in or just because of them being a couple. Just being an interracial couple in right, small right, town, right. P- Pennsylvania in 1980, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. And so- uh, sure. And so- uh, so my uncle tells me that he's walking through, he's walking down the alley behind Artie's house. And Artie had this little brother whose name I forget. And uh, and the little brother saw him walking down the street. My my uncle like waved, it's a small town, kind of like waved at the kid, the kid standing in the back backyard. And he just, the, the little kid just called him the N-word. Hmm. Just this like little kid, like a three-year-old. Hmm. You know, said it like, the way my uncle described it, said it as innocent as can be. Like he was just saying... Like, hey, friend, right. <laughs> but that that, right. that that word was so commonly used in their house that to that kid that didn't feel like anything. Right. So here's a good adjective for you. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Like he was just saying hi. And my uncle came home and he was livid. I mean, livid. Mm. And he told me that. And he said, you can't go over there and you can't play with Artie and blah, blah, blah. And we had this conversation about the N word. And it was it, it was the same thing. I was like third grade, maybe fourth grade. And. It was it was the first time I learned that there was this extra power. And the way that I knew it was my uncle gave me the following instruction. He was mm-hmm. like, look, when it comes to fighting, you should only fight to defend yourself. You should never pick a fight with anyone. You should never hit anyone first. You should never blah, blah, blah. And he had this whole rules of engagement about fighting. But then he was like, unless someone calls you the N-word, then hmm. you can punch him in the face. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Literally what he told wow. me. Wow. Wow. And, and that's how I knew that that was something different, you know? And... A few years after this, when I was in fifth grade, we moved to a part of town that was all white. And when I say all white, I mean all white. Like I was the only black person in my classes, in my neighborhood, on my school bus. It was really weird and really isolating. And it made me feel like something was really, (laughs) really wrong with me. I suddenly didn't know how to deal with myself, how to deal with white people, how to deal with black people. And yet I had to. The rules of engagement grew much more complex and opaque. I realize now that that's how it is for everyone, this whole country right now. So many people, so much fear and isolation, so much confusion about how to engage. So... How do we work together? I've been thinking about group projects. Okay. <laughs> and okay. like when you're in college and you have to do a group project, mm-hmm. you got five people on your team and one of them is kind of an asshole and one of them is a little bit mm-hmm. of an overachiever and one of them is codependent and one of them is cool. And you have to figure out the whole you thing. You sound together. like you know this really well. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. No, yes. no offense to anyone out there yes. who I work in the group project with. I'm just saying. I've been there. Yeah. And, so, uh, and so you're trying to accomplish something together. Mm. And take that, but times 320 million people. Yeah. I guess the question that I think is the one of the most important questions and the one that I don't have an answer to right now is like, with all these people trying to figure out something together, can we all do that? 
Like, can this country go forward? I think if we, we, I think if we start with our families, I think we have to embrace the diversity within our own families, which I think becomes a school for embracing the diversity within our communities. And I think those communities can, I think it can grow out from there. But, you know, there's people who are not accepted within their own homes, you know, children, wives. And I don't know if you can have, if you can have some degree of toxicity within your own home and expect to step out into the world Mm -hmm. and not handle the world in a less, in, in, in a more impersonal way than how you deal with things within your own home and i think that we have to to listen to our partners and our and our mates and and our loved ones in a way with with an openness and we have to teach it we have to teach it to our children because then they go off in school and they either practice supporting each other or in some ways oppressing each other or bullying and these things these people grow up to be adults and they carry out those same things and those same habits, but on institutional levels, you know, on, you know, and on, in, in, in corporations and companies. And Mm. it sounds corny. It sounds trite, but I think we have to just do a much better job of listening to each other. And when you talk about larger groups of people, when you talk about Jews and Muslims or, or, you know, uh, Democrats and Republicans or whatever, like anyone, we have to, we just have to do a better job of, of respecting um, the other person, respecting the other culture, respecting the other, the other point of view, and recognizing other people as humans, first and foremost, and therefore valid. And right? so how do you teach your daughter, for example, to recognize the humanity of people who don't validate her right to be a human mm. being? Mm. Right? Like this is something that I, my kids and I are re- we're, we're really in this mm. because my son, for example, this summer went to travel with his he went. He spent two weeks with my dad in D.C. Yeah, I flew there mid-July. My dad, who converted to Islam mid-July. in 1992. It was primarily black. Okay. Lives in D.C., um, working-class situation outside of a D.C. area. When you saw a white person, it was like an occasion. Like It was like, oh, my God, look at that. It's a white person. <laughs> and then he spent a week with his mother's parents, his mother's white, with his mother's parents in Florida. When he saw a black person, it was really like, oh, wow, that's a black person. So mm. Right? <laughs> and so, and this is a Bay Area kid who made right. this triangle this summer. So he and, saw uh, a lot of America. It's a big country. And he came back with some questions. Right. And, you know, his one of his questions that I think is a lot of our questions it's just like, okay, so I'm in Florida, Dad. I saw four Confederate flags when I was in Florida. Whoa. In total. How long were you there for? A week. <laughs> so you were counting. Uh, yeah, of course I was counting. I was there like, there are Trump supporters uh, around me. There are people I who I see flags, I see hats, I, I see T-shirts, I see bumper stickers I of people who I know may have on some level... Like like either would like to or have voted for people or would support or don't mind if I'm attacked, lynched, killed. I think that the people know what they're doing. They're directing it at me to make a statement and they feel like white is special. And I don't know if everyone feels this, but I think they believe in white supremacy. How do I see the humanity in those people? Like how do I, or am I just turning myself into a sitting duck if I don't, you know, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing his words, but he's getting at an essential philosophical question. Right. Like how, right. you know, like 
how do you do that? What gives you the strength to do that or the clarity? And more importantly, how do you pass that on to your kid? Because no one that's, wants to be the hard. first person out there being turning the other cheek when people are out there killing people. No, I, I think that's that that's it's challenging. And I think you ideally want to raise your children to be critical thinkers. Mm. And so I think you could teach your child, and I'm speaking as a black man who's had my own experiences. Yeah. Um, with profiling or racial profiling or what have you. Um, but I think that you can teach your child to be very conscious of how they behave around police, but also teach them that there are good police officers, hmm. you know? And I think you could teach them that there are ones who, who definitely abuse their power. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, like I've, I've experienced it. I've, I've no Mm-hmm. I have friends who experienced it, mm-hmm. but I think it would be unwise to teach your child that every cop out there is is potentially going to do you harm, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I do think you have to build in that awareness. It's your responsibility as a black parent to build in your awareness that you have to be very conscious. And so I think in some ways that is to say and if you look at, you know, what you mentioned, if you, you know, you could see someone with a Make America Great Again hat and, and that hat for a black person begins to become synonymous with a Confederate flag. Yeah. And a Confederate flag begins to, it feels that means certain things to us, you know. And so the challenge, I think, for for me is to to teach my child, who is a, who is a woman at that, a young, a, a girl, is to really emphasize her thinking of herself as just as good, as equal, as as and and prepare her to to be that. As a black man, I don't want to get lumped into the stereotypes of black culture. I don't think any black person wants to. Mm. And you want to be able to be looked at as an individual. That's true for Muslims, that's true for, you know, everyone. And so I think I would try to teach and try to live in a way that is that sort of um, embodies that example of 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 really first uh, embracing someone as an individual. And if they give me a reason to uh, to think less of them, then allow them to give me that reason. Mm -hmm. But but I'm on a first step to a person um, um, treating them with kindness and respect. What is America's problem? Why can't we do this? You know what? Let's put America on the couch. Do a therapy session. Tell me about your childhood, America. You have these fantastical ideas about freedom and emotional ideas about equality, but they're not really working out. You've actually been really cruel and mean to all kinds of people, and you never want to talk about it or try to address it, and you get really mad when people bring it up. But then you can't figure out why you can't stay in a healthy relationship or why you keep dating assholes, why you're having this big emotional breakdown right now, why everything feels like it's falling apart. Imagine, like that, like I said, America is on is on the couch. America is willing to receive advice. America has finally admitted powerlessness over its own ridiculousness, and is like, 
Mersh, help us out. Tell us. Oh, okay. <laughs> tell us. We're, t- we're, we're taking advice from a lot of people. We're coming to you. What should we do? Well, this is a bad start for America if they're coming <laughs> to me to fix their problems. So, but first of all, so let me just put that out there. But we can continue. So what's the? What am I here to fix? Yeah. So they So they just want to know we're we're struggling right now. We're 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 infighting. We don't know what our path. We don't know what our future is. Things are crazy. Uh, everything is falling apart. What what advice? What advice do you have for us? What what should we do? I think and I think we have to do work in our own lives. Uh, no matter how on point we may be to even do better. And I don't think you can, I don't think anyone gets to let themselves off the hook Mm. from that, you know? Fear and ego can run rampant in all of us. All of us, even me, even Mahershala Ali, Oscar winner and most beautiful looking man to ever walk the face of the earth. So we have to do something personally to address it, to make sure that it doesn't make us behave in shitty and terrible ways. A lot of what I keep coming back to, though, is if we did this as a people, as a country, what then? What if we chose to address the fear and ego that runs rampant within us before we started acting out on each other? Is that even possible for us? Is that even possible for me? I don't want to talk about this. But I have to. In the mornings now, I look in the mirror at my face grown thick and old with age and my eyes that contain secrets that not even I fully understand. And I see that the past has a will of its own, that objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. Closer Than They Appear was first published in the fall of 2017. You can go back and listen to all seven episodes of the podcast. Just search for Closer Than They Appear on your podcast app. The show was created by host Carvel Wallace, senior producer Casey Miner, producer Lacey Roberts, editor Leela Day, associate producer Meredith Hadenot, engineer Mark Bain, sound designer Ian Koss, Executive producer Julie Kane and general manager Kazar Kampala, with Graylin Brashear, Paulina Lemonnier, Megan Jones, and Jessica Wang. The original music was by the all vocal group Antique Naked Soul. I'm Malika Bilal, and we'll be back on Monday. <laughs>